Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with my co-host Bela Sebrow, and welcome to the Definitive Rap Podcast. Thank you, Vin News, for hosting our shows. Since the first week of November, we saw political earthquakes in different parts of the world. Exhibit one in Virginia. All it took for Democrats to get sent packing in the recent elections were three words, critical race theory, a curriculum that indoctrinates young students that America is a racist country and that if you are white, you are inherently racist. And if you are black, you are inherently a victim. Democrats and the media pushed back against this narrative, but the voters weren't fooled. Unfortunately, the ADL has been a vocal supporter of this racial indoctrination. Exhibit two. Ever since the Obama administration, the anti-Israel group J Street has tried desperately to weasel its way into legitimacy by being recognized by the Israeli government, which had been shunned under Bibi's leadership. Last week, Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid sat down with members of Congress brought to Israel under the auspices of J Street. Exhibit 3. At last week's Republican-Jewish coalition conference, Former Ambassador Nikki Haley took a swipe at APAC by raising the specter of disassociating from politicians who supported the Iran deal, opposed the U.S. embassy move to Jerusalem, and is embraced by anti-Semites who support the BDS movement. She said, quote, your pro-Israel group should have absolutely nothing to do with them, a reference to APAC's decades-long strategy of being bipartisan. We will discuss these topics and related issues with today's honored guest, the award-winning senior editor-in-chief of the Jewish News Syndicate, Jonathan Tobin, whom Bela will give a proper introduction to in just a few moments. Bela? Thank you, Alan. Yes, uh, there has been much unrest this month. Just this month alone, it's been pretty bad. Terrorists backed by Iran attempted to storm Baghdad's green zone after losing in Iraq's national elections. Israeli intelligence prevented Iranian-ordered attacks on Israeli tourists and business people in Tanzania, Senegal, and Ghana. Israel's Iron Dome intercepted a drone launched out of Gaza by Hamas as the Iranian-backed terrorist group continues to advance its drone program. A terrorist group backed by Iran attempted to assassinate the Iraqi prime minister, launching three drones carrying explosives at his residence in Baghdad. Iranian-backed terrorists are continuing to hold hostage U.S. Embassy staff in Yemen. And the FBI sent an advisory memo to U.S. companies warning of the threat from Iranian hackers. This is just the tip of the iceberg. We've got to prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon and address the missile program and terrorism. And Nikki Haley is the one for that job. We are lucky to have with us again Jonathan Tobin, award-winning journalist, editor-in-chief of JNS, a senior contributor for The Federalist, and a columnist for The New York Post, Newsweek, and Haaretz, and host of the new podcast, Top Story with Jonathan Tobin. 
Jonathan, welcome again to the Definitive Wrap. Thanks so much, Bela, and to Alan. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back with you. Jonathan, we have so much to discuss today. And so I would like to start with your recently featured column on President, President Biden's neutrality on infrastructure of the war against Israel. You wrote, by choosing not to oppose UNRWA's efforts to de- delegitimize Israel, officials are sending a signal to Palestinians that they don't need to accept the reality of Israel, which is in reverse of former President Trump's stand. You question, and I quote, does an American refusal to oppose a document that essentially calls for Israel's elimination matter as much as a warm embrace of leaders? Jonathan, what is the answer to that and why? Let's delve into that, please. Well, I think the context here is that uh, the Israeli government, for, for understandable reasons in terms of uh, the needs of the state of Israel, as well as the political needs of both uh, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and Foreign Minister Yair Lapid, is trying to stay as close as possible to the Biden administration and to have as good relations with Washington as possible. Of course, every Israeli prime minister has that as a priority. Um, and they are, um, they have been engaging in very warm embraces and exchanging loving statements with uh, Biden administration officials. Um, just the most recent was the arrival in Israel of uh, uh, UN ambassador Linda Thomas Greenfield. Lots of, uh, you know, eyewash about how everybody loves each other. Um, interestingly, at the same time, uh, Iran and special Iran envoy Robert Malley was in Israel. Um, and uh, to speak with Yair Lapid, Bennett wouldn't sit down with him. Uh, that was the one exception to this, because there's no point in speaking to somebody who is, uh, you know, was not merely a... Uh, a critic of Israel, but somebody who is basically an ally, uh, somebody who is very soft on the Iranians and an advocate for appeasement. But the point is, um, we have all this high-level diplomacy going on. Israel's trying to stay close to the Americans. But at the UN, there was a vote on um, the United Nations Relief Works Agency, the, um, pal- the refugee a- agency that is devoted solely to, uh, quote-unquote, helping the Palestinians, while all the other refugees in the world have a separate agency and the Palestinians have their own agency. And the point about these two agencies is that the UN High Commissioner for Refugees has as its goal to resettle and help refugees, actually resettle and help refugees. UNRWA is there to keep the Palestinian refugees in place and there they have remained for nearly 80 years um, to be political props in the war against Israel. UNRWA is basically as I said, is the infrastructure of the conflict. Um, infrastructure is a very big, you know, it's a buzzword today in American politics, but there's no better word to describe it. And the United, you know, under the Trump administration, the United States rightly pulled its funding of UNRWA, saying this, they're, they're part of the problem. They are the problem. They're not part of the solution. The Biden administration, with its blind commitment to multilateralism, um, has gone back in, uh, in, um, supporting UNRWA as it's gone back to supporting the anti-Semitic United Nations Human Rights Council. And in this vote, they actually didn't vote against a document which basically called for the Palestinian right of return, which is indistinguishable from calling for the end of Israel as a Jewish state. And I said, this matters more. Um, all the signals that Biden has been sending to, to the Palestinians, not that he has any expectations that he's going to make peace. He, he's, he's not dumb enough to think he can do that. The Palestinians have rejected peace all along, but rather than 
as, as his predecessor did, trying to jolt them into reality and force them to accept the reality of Israel and to negotiate with Israel as it is, um, and, yeah, and recognize things like, you know, that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Biden is planning on opening a consulate in Israel for the Palestinians, I might add, in West Jerusalem, in the part of Jerusalem that has always been part of Israel, um, you know, which is kind of nuts. Um, but it's part of this idea of like of trying to lay the groundwork for a two-state solution that the Palestinians don't want and that will never that you know for the foreseeable future cannot happen. And this is exactly what keeps intransigent strong within the Palestinian people. Um, their political culture is just you know it, it cannot it is linked inextricably to the war against israel to the 100 year old war against zionism and to the extent that biden is paying attention to the palestinians in israel at all it's to actually encourage um the continuation of that war rather than to discourage it right jonathan you wrote about j street the recent trip to israel and ben Cohn, who also wrote in jns about the Democratic Socialists of America who want to revoke the membership of Jamal Bowman. And Jamal Bowman is who I want to talk about. Um, the others on the trip uh, included Barbara Lee, who has always been anti-Israel. I know that in the past when NORPAC has had mission days to Washington, she would not even meet with the members. Mark Pocan from Wisconsin is a real um, bad Israel basher, but they all went for a free trip to Israel. But Jamal Bowman, he's, he's who I want to focus on. You know, I follow him on Twitter. So he went, he went to Yad Vashem and I have quote, and he was, you know, talking about how, how bad the Holocaust is, the victims. And then he sent a tweet out to um, representative Paul Gosar from Arizona, who from what I understand is also a, a headache for Republicans and for the Jewish community. And he attacked uh, Gosar by saying cartoons, normalize fascism, cartoons, normalize lynching, cartoons, normalized anti-Semitism. And this was in response to something that Gosar had tweeted out uh, mocking some women. For, I forgot what the reason why it was. But he is somebody who has been a frequent Israel basher himself. Uh, after going to Yad Vashem, he went to Hebron and he took a picture. And in the caption, it says, had the honor of meeting with children today in the occupied West Bank city of Hebron. Hebron. Uh, there are streets they cannot walk and places they cannot go simply because they are Palestinians. When I asked them about their dreams, their answer was simple, freedom. The occupation must end. And this is somebody for whom so many of his comments are almost a contradiction of his own words and something that can be so easily refuted. Just as an example, his reference to the cartoons by Gosar. Palestinian Media Watch has a whole slew of anti-Semitic cartoons from the PA. And there is so much that can be done and I'm asking questions and making comments at the same time because I haven't even processed what I'm, what I'm trying to even get through, but you'll know what I'm talking about better than I do. Um, he, he should be so easily sat down with because he's, he's contradicted himself. He's not like Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib who are just unapologetically anti-Israel. They make no secrets about it. Whereas Bowman makes so many contradictory statements of his own that it almost seems to me like somebody needs to be sitting down with them and saying, you said X, but here's a contradiction Y, and so on and so on. You make sense of what I just said because you're smarter than I am, and I'm sure you'll have a great answer. Well, I, I think that you know, you're right that Jamal Bowman, who considers himself a member of the squad, along with 
AOC and uh, Omar and uh, Talib. Um, you know, but he also he's a congressman from New York. He has some Jewish constituents, you know, um, and so he is all over the place. And yes, it would be helpful if uh, the Jewish community could really have a strong dialogue with him. I don't think J Street is the right the the right group for that because they're reinforcing his sort of intersectional faith about uh, the Palestinians being oppressed and that the occupation is the problem. You know, it's a complicated uh, conflict. Um, and I'm not saying that, uh, you know, that the Palestinians, even those who live in Hebron, don't, um, you know, don't face challenges. But, you know, their goal is to get rid of the Jews who live in Hebron. That's, that's why they don't go on some streets, um, because the Jewish neighborhood, um, you know, and it just is, is becomes a no-go zone because it's, it's, it's conflict, um, because the Jews there are in danger. The Jews in Kiryat Arba, near, you know, um, next door are in danger. That's, that's the nature of that. And, um, yeah, he needs to be educated uh, about that. Um, and, um, the context there is that, you know, the J Street mission to Israel, uh, you're right. A lot of Israel bashers got a free trip to Israel where they could pose with Palestinians, but they also got meetings with Lapid and Bennett. Um, Bennett would not meet with J Street officials, just with the Congress, members of Congress that J Street brought over. Lapid met with J Street. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, it's sort of, um, there was a reason why Israeli ambassadors and the Israeli government for the last, you know, 12 years did not recognize, did not meet with J Street, because it understands that J Street, although it claims it's pro-Israel as well as pro-peace, it's supposedly still Zionist. Um, it is a consistent Israel basher. It's, it's, its job, as it sees it, is to work against the interests of the Israeli government and to push for pressure. That's why it was created. It, you know, it's sort of a rump of the Democratic Party, and, and it's there to back policies which go against the will of the majority of the Israeli people. Um, so I, I think that's a, it's a foolish game that the Israeli government is playing by playing footsie with, with J Street. Um, certainly, members of the Israeli government, you know, should always meet with members of Congress, no matter where they are, no matter who they are. I don't criticize that at all. That's necessary. I don't know that Bennett was, you know, and Lapid were, were giving, a, you know, a, um, the message that they needed to hear amid all of this uh, eyewash about how everybody loves each other. But I, I think it was an unfortunate, you know, uh, decision to sort of give J Street a boost. It's, it's an organization that to some extent, is still irrelevant, even though it certainly has a lot of friends in high places uh, right now in Washington. Um, it has never been able to uh, elbow out APAC as it always wanted to do, uh, because it just doesn't have the support. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't represent anything in any body that, you know, um, and, and its views are really marginal to the reality of, of what's going on in the Middle East. Um, even in the context of a liberal, liberal American Jewish community that itself often doesn't understand the realities of the, of the Middle East. And, and that, if we could, well, that could be a good segue to the question of, you know, what's the future of APAC and, and Nikki Haley's criticism uh, of APAC for um, still dealing with the overwhelming majority of Democrats that, you know, backed the, the Iran deal, that criticized Israel. Um, you know, my, my sentiments about this are, you know, are, 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 I think we have to understand something. Um, I think everything that Nikki Haley said was to some extent right. Of course, 
Um, the Democrats haven't been held accountable by APAC or by pro-Israel voters. Um, that's because most of their voters are not don't prioritize Israel or buy into some of these myths about Israel, the situation. But we can't really, you know, we can't get rid of APAC. You know, it can't be just, you know, Republican Jews and Democratic Jews. Um, it doesn't work. As much as the RJC, the Republican Jewish Coalition, does, does excellent work and is really a, a force for Israel, and as much as, you know, the two parties, as, as I've said and written before, have exchanged identity in, in the last 60 years, where, you know, used to be the Democrats were more or less the pro-Israel party, the Republicans who were divided by, by in between people who cared about it and people who just didn't care about it at all. Today, Republicans are lockstep pro-Israel party. They, they are basically almost unanimous in their ardent support for Israel. That's due to a lot of factors, um, you know, some good work by Republican Jews, as well as the fact that evangelical Christians are ardent, more ardent Zionists than most American Jews. But And Democrats are deeply divided between um, sort of an aging mainstream establishment that still pays lip service to being pro-Israel and a, you know, younger, it's a generational divide as much as anything else, a younger group um, where the left-wing activist base has bought into intersectional myths that hold that, is, you know, the, the Palestinian war against Israel is the moral equivalent of uh, the, the struggle for civil rights in the United States. And that has led to the fact that, you know, a lot of Democrats are really not pro-Israel at all. Some are gone all the way over to the apartheid, you know, apartheid state lie and opposing Zionism, like some members of the squad. But we need APAC because the conceit of APAC, you know, from the 1970s and 80s to, the, to this day worked. It was, I mean, it's not what the formula doesn't work as well as it used to. Uh, because of the failings, the divisions within the Democratic Party. But the idea was to get Americans throughout the political spectrum, liberals, conservatives, Republicans, and Democrats, to befriend members of Congress or politicians who might become members of Congress, talk to them about Israel, get them to go to Israel, educate them about how it's good politics as well as good policy to support Israel. And thereby you create a bipartisan consensus on behalf of Israel. That was genius, and it worked for a long time. It's not working as well anymore because the activist base of the Democratic Party, you know, is against Israel. And yet, we can't scrap it because the goal of making all Jews or all supporters of Israel Republicans isn't going to happen. That's just not going to happen. You know, um, whatever the merits of that case might be, it won't work. You know, the two parties have repeatedly exchanged power over the last 30 years in Congress and the White House. That's not going to change. You know, every time, as I like to say, every time anybody wins an election in this country, they think it's the start of a thousand year right, but it's not true. They're going to lose next time. Just as the Democrats were, you know, very in great, you know, we're, we're celebrating that they had conquered the government in, you know, in November, 2020, and they'll never lose again. Well, guess what? It, it's, you know, it's, they're they're going to get shellacked in the next midterms, and you know unless Biden wakes up, um, Democrats are going to have a hard time holding the White House in in twenty twenty four. No matter who the Republicans nominate, even President Trump, although that would set up you know an, a rather interesting and bizarre rematch. Right. Um, so you know, so the pro Israel community has to continue to try to work the Democratic side of the aisle. 
Um, it can't have the expectations that it's going to succeed as well as it used to, but it can't give up. It has to keep working at it. Um, Pro-Israel Democrats, Jewish Democrats have to realize this is their fight. There are some people in the Democratic Party who are still, you know, strong supporters of Israel, strong opponents of anti-Semitism within their own parties. People like Ted Deutsch in Florida, who stood up on the floor of Congress and called out, you know, and called out Rashida Tlaib for anti-Semitism. We need more of him, you know, not just Republicans. Um, and that, sh- that needs to be the goal. So while Nikki Haley is making some good partisan points, as well as some good sense, APAC can't be replaced. It just needs, we need to reinforce it, not destroy it. Jonathan, your take on the myths about history and insidious ideas about white privilege are very interesting. Can we talk about how Jew hatred on the political left has increased and why? Yeah, I I think this is so important. Indeed, I think that the whole discussion about critical race theory and intersectionalism is in some ways, it is the most important issue facing the United States and as well as the most important issue facing American Jewry, uh, even though a lot of people, uh, sometimes I get pushback, why do you keep writing about it all the time? Um, it's, well, it's because I think it's essential. Um, the, the point here is that a nation that hates itself, that is rejecting its founding ideas, that it, it comes to believe that it was conceived in sin, and, um, you know, that, that, and that buys into this racialist view of the world where everybody is defined solely by their skin color and background and divided into groups of either victims or victimizers, depending not on who they are or what they've done, but on their background and their skin mm-hmm. color. This is antithetical to the whole idea of America and of American democracy. America hasn't always been perfect, quite the contrary. You know, it, 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 it has, we have faced tremendous challenges about race, slavery, um, and that continues. But the arc has always been towards freedom. The arc has always been, you know, to, to, towards more liberty. Um, Americans can be proud of their country. They don't have to be ashamed of it. And critical race theory and intersectionalism um, causes us to hate our country. And because it conceives as everybody is either possessors of white privilege or, you know, uh, people of color uh, who are victims, it categorizes Jews and the state of Israel as white privilege. Now, of course, this is nuts because the majority of uh, Jews in Israel aren't, are, by the definitions of the left, people of color, because their origins can be traced to the, the Middle East or North Africa, the Mizrahim. And, um, but that doesn't matter. You know, the Palestinians are treated as if they are, you know, the marchers for civil rights in, in Selma from 60 years ago. And in doing so, it has enabled a culture of, of anti-Semitism to grow up on the left, in which Jews are demonized, Jewish rights are, are negated. And this is, it, it essentially gives a permission slip to anti-Semitism. And its infiltration into the schools, uh, and through curricula, like the New York Times fallacious 1619 project, um, which they continue to flog, even though it's been debunked. Um, you know, this is, this is the true battlefront for the future of this country. And let's understand it. An America that hates itself is going to hate Israel, too, um, and, and Jews. So that's why we have to fight it. 
And, you know, as much as we can shry uh, in this business a lot, um, the results in Virginia showed that when this nationwide pushback against critical race theory indoctrination, which is being insidiously uh, pushed through the schools, even though the liberal media keeps telling us it's not a real thing. I mean, they're gaslighting us on that. It is a real thing. Um, teachers training, books and books and libraries, books and courses, it's all there. And um, what happened in Virginia was that that became the defining issue for an election in which the Democratic candidate, um, the former governor, Terry McAuliffe, said the parents don't have the right to say what's being taught in the schools. And uh, the electorate said different, even in a state whose demography, you know, the experts had told us had made it irrevocably a blue state, that it had just been flipped. It used to be a Republican state, then purple, and now it was going to be a blue state forever. Well, it turned bright red uh, earlier this month because of this issue. And it shows, you know, democracy, you know, it works. It's not a spectator sport, uh, unlike, you know, what many people sometimes seem to think. You can't just watch it on TV. You have to get out. You have to get involved. Um, What happened in Virginia showed that when people get out and get involved, outrageous things, even when they're backed by the federal government. You know, we have the attorney general sending out a directive saying that basically parents uh, who are protesting at school board meetings are the moral equivalent of domestic terrorists because in the Biden administration and in the left, in the liberal media right now, basically anybody who pushes back against any of their narratives is an insurrectionist, you know, uh, fascist. Um, But what happened in Virginia showed that, you know, these battles aren't irrevocably lost. We hear a lot of pessimism and defeatism from, from people saying, oh, the system is rigged. It doesn't work. Well, you know what? You push back, you know, um, and and you have the issues uh, on your side. You can, you can win. So, Jonathan, I do want to recognize something also that you said. Um, there are Democrats who are pro-Israel, and they're genuinely pro-Israel. I have a few people who I'm friendly with at the Democratic Majority for Israel. I won't say their names. I don't want to get them in trouble just yet, and I want to get them on my show. Um, but th- there are issues, for example, going back to uh, Greenblatt and the ADL and supporting Black Lives Matter and critical race theory because they want to try to cement some type of Jewish-Black relationship. There are Black groups who are very pro-Israel, and there are Black groups. Um, remember when you and I, when we spoke in the summer, that rally that you had in Washington, uh, there were two speakers um, from the Black community who were incredibly pro-Israel. And it just, it frosts me that if the ADL wants to have a relationship with the Black community, why isn't he going and speaking with people like them instead of people like Black Lives Matter and advocates for critical race theory? Well, it's an important point. Uh, the ADL, as I like to say, it's the one national Jewish organization that actually still has a job to do. Um, we have a lot of organizations, um, some of whom are really, you know, they, they're, they're past their expiration date. They're obsolescent. ADL still has a job fighting anti-Semitism, monitoring anti-Semitism. We need it. Um, yet under um, uh, under Jonathan Greenblatt, its current director, who succeeded Abe Foxman several years ago, it has become basically, you know, a Democratic Party proxy. Um, it's about liberal politics. It's not about its job. And it's interesting because in the last few months, I've been very critical of Greenblatt, <laughs> to put it mildly, uh, over these last few years. But he's been starting to recognize that anti-Semitism is a problem on the left. Um, uh, you know, I think he mischaracterizes it in some ways, but, you know, good for him. He's finally recognized that this is a potent threat to, to American Jews, to, to, 
to uh, for anti-Semitism everywhere. But yet the ADL is still endorsing groups like, you know, working, making common cause with groups like Black Lives Matter and treating critics of critical race theory as if they're all white racists, you know, buying into the liberal media's um, gaslighting about, about critical race theory. Um, and as long as it does that, his rhetoric about left-wing anti-Semitism is meaningless because that's the infrastructure of left-wing anti-Semitism, it's critical race theory. And opposition to it is not racism. Opposition to it is opposition to anti-Semitism. It's, it's, it's support for the values of this country. And, um, you know, he's, you know his, his stand on this is, is, to put it mildly, quite disingenuous. Uh, Jonathan, uh, we just have a few more minutes left. So I, I would like to go back and talk a little bit about APAC. You wrote that their formula, and you mentioned a little bit about it before, too. Um, their formula was conceived in the 1970s. It worked then, and it, it achieved success in the 1980s, but it is no longer working. Um, and in fact, Nikki Haley's demand that APAC should snub Democrats who aren't fully supportive of Israel won much applause at the recent Republican Jewish coalition in Las Vegas. So my question is, um, is there a future in bipartisan advocacy for Israel? And also, what changes have you seen in APAC over the years? And what do you think is the cause? Well, you know, there, there should be, there, we have to hope there is a future for bipartisan um, you know, support for Israel because, you know, the Republicans aren't going to control this country forever, you know, in every fall. So we, we need pro-Israel Democrats. That, you know, that's a fight that liberals and Democrats love Israel have to fight. Um, they have been losing ground in recent years. Um, APAC believes in bipartisanship because that is its old raison d'etre. That is its formula. It, you know, you can't abandon it. And as much as I understand and sympathize with the idea that anybody who voted for the Iran deal should get snubbed, um, that would mean basically snubbing the entire Democratic Party. So, you know, it, it's an impossible ask. Um, Barack Obama made support for the Iran deal a partisan litmus test for members of Congress. Very few dared to, to oppose it because of that. Chuck Schumer, even, you know, the supposed guardian, you know, the Shomer of Israel, um, you know, he voted against it himself, but he had to promise he wouldn't lobby against it, even though he's, he was, the, you know, the, the Democratic uh, whip. Um, that's how strong the pull on that is. So you have to you have to deal with reality here. Um, uh, you know, APAC has had its successes. It's had its failures. It's a group, you know, it's, it's human, full of humans. You know, they don't get everything right all the time. Um, I'm not claiming that they do. What I am claiming is that if it didn't exist, we'd have to reinvent it. So, you know, I'm not for trashing APAC. Um, sure, uh, Republican Jews have given up on APAC because they don't see the Democrats being of any use on Israel. And I understand why they think that, um, you know, because quite frankly, many Democrats are opponents of Israel and the Democratic Party, is, you know, pays lip service at times to, to being pro-Israel, but doesn't really walk the walk, talk the talk as much as it sometimes talks the talk. But in reality, the pro-Israel community has to still work with the Democratic Party. APAC is the vehicle for that. Um, they have to, we have to hope that they succeed. We have to try to help them succeed. Um, but their task is in infinitely harder. It does, it's not a question of them getting dumber. It's a, you know, the, the, the ground has, has shifted underneath them. 
this tectonic shift on the left of, of the advance of intersectionalism, the rise of the intersectional left, is something that APAC does not have the power. You know, we, we sometimes buy into the anti-Semitic myths about APAC being at this all-powerful lobby as if, as if it had a, you know, a fraction of the power that the pharmaceutical lobby or any of the industry lobbies actually have, or even the Arab oil lobby has always had. Um, but they, they have worked, but, you know, they can't work miracles. But we have to support their efforts to gain ground within the Democratic Party. That's the global view of this. Um, that's kind of part of my job is to point that out. Um, as much as the Democrats have disappointed the pro-Israel community, have done really bad things in some ways, even the quote-unquote pro-Israel Democrats have sometimes failed us. But that doesn't, you know, that you have to understand in a country with Republicans and Democrats, where the two parties are going to keep trading power forever. Um, it's a democracy. Nobody's going to win, win and then never lose again, even though sometimes each of these parties buy into that myth. Um, it, it's up to, to the pro-Israel community to work with the Democrats and try to you know, bring them back to their senses or bring as many of them back to their senses as possible. APEC's the vehicle for that. So, um, you know, that, that, that's the bottom line there. It still needs to be made to work. Okay. Jonathan, we have about a minute and a half left, so I'm going to be very quick. Um, one of my criticisms against Jewish groups is we've always brought water guns to gunfights. Uh, Roger Waters, um, he has a new tour coming out, and uh, he has a takeoff of, um, you know, the song, A Brick in the Wall, where it says, teachers, leave those kids alone. So in his program, it says, Israel, leave those Palestinian children alone. Shortly after, a group of about 200 celebrities wrote a letter in support of Israel. And my um, criticism of that is, is that your letter has to be a message to all of your supporters to boycott Roger Waters' concert. Uh, It's a nice letter to say we support Israel, but until celebrities attack Roger Waters, me doing it, you doing it, the ZOA doing it isn't going to do anything. Well, I, I think, you know, the broader point I think you're trying to make is how hard do we have to fight? What, what tactics do we adopt in dealing with these people? I, I think if we oppose cultural boycotts, um, you know, uh, people, people want to hear Roger Waters do whatever he does. Um, you know, I, I think we should treat open anti-Semites with the sort of opprobrium that they deserve. Um, I'm, you know, it's not a question of can't cancel culture. We wouldn't. You know, nobody, if, if somebody was a member of the Ku Klux Klan and, you know, was a popular entertainer, I mean, they'd be not just canceled, they would be shut down. They would be treated, you know, nobody would host them. No, no venue would, would allow them. Um, nobody would dare be seen with them. Um, that's not the case with anti-Semites in our culture. Um, we need to be strong. We need to be vocal. Um, you know, I, I'm not that interested in the BDS campaign against Roger Waters. We have, we have other fish to fry, um, and bigger, bigger enemies than, than some stupid aging rock singer. Um, but the point is, uh, you're right. We need, you know, that letter was good. We need more pro-Israel people to speak up within the entertainment industry, which is so, you know, um, so left wing and so difficult for anybody within that context to say anything. Um, you know, that, that is, that is pro-Israel, that is not leftist. Um, and I encourage that. Um, but yes, we need to speak up against Roger Waters. Um, but I'm, I'm more worried, frankly, about, uh, AOC Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, people with power, people who sit in Congress, 
than some um, some graying, you know, rock singer on another nostalgia tour, okay. even if he is an open anti-Semite. Right. We're out of time. Uh, Jonathan, thank you for joining us today thank in you. your articulate and dynamic manner. Uh, thank you to VinNews.com for hosting our show. And thank you to our audience for tuning in. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your hosts, Bela Sebro and Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.